This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. And it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, fish out of water. How our ancestors, yours and mine, hauled their scaly selves out of the deeps and onto the dirt, started walking around, and by and by begat us. I'll talk to Neil Schubert, paleontologist, fossil hunter extraordinaire, and author of Our Inner Fish, A Journey into the 3.5 Billion Year History of the Human Body. If you don't feel old now, you will by the end of the show. So find a rocking chair and settle back. Coming up, Neil Shubin. He's a professor of anatomy at the University of Chicago and a paleontologist who spends his time reconstructing the history of life on Earth from fossils and DNA evidence. He has a fondness for fish, and that specialty paid off when he and his colleagues made one of the biggest fossil discoveries of recent years, a previously unknown species that may have played a key role in the transition from fish to land-dwelling animals and perhaps the granddaddy of us all. I spoke to Neil Shubin about his prize catch, its impact on evolutionists and creationists, and what fish reveal about our own history and anatomy. You have in your lab a locked cabinet next to the freezer. Yeah, the locked cabinet says Canadian Arctic on it, and you open up Canadian Arctic, and in there is a, a, a fish that looks like an amphibian. <laughs> a fish? Isn't it stinking by now? No, it's 375 million years old, and it's rock. Um... And, you know, it would look like a fish to you, in a sense, in that it has scales in its back and, and fin webbing. Tell me about this specimen that's under lock and key in your lab. Yeah, it's really remarkable. So if I was to show it to you, you'd say, oh, scales in its back and fin webbing looks like a fish. But then if you knew anything about the earliest creatures to walk on land, you'd have issues. You'd see, well, it looks like an amphibian head, a flat head with eyes on top. It has a neck, which fish don't have. And when you look inside that fin webbing, fin webbing, what do you see? Bones of the upper arm, forearm, even parts of the wrist and palm. It's a fish with fins that have pieces of limbs. Uh, it's a fish with uh, scales, but with, you know, an early, uh, a skull that looks like early land-living creatures. It's a fishibian. Uh, we call it fishapod, actually. Fishapod. <laughs> Great name. Um, you have something in your bag over there. Um, is it in any way related to this fish we're talking it about? It is the fish. I have, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a cast of the fish. You want to show it to me? Yeah. Here's a, here's a skull. You can take it, actually. Uh, now look at that head. Now where are the eyes? They sit on top, like, almost like a crocodile, right? I want to say that this looks like a gator that uh, had a run-in with a swamp buggy and came out <laughs> much the worse. Yeah, right. Sort of a flattened alligator head that I'm holding. Exactly. And look in the front there. You can even see two nostrils. Oh, you're right. Yeah, big ones. Two on holes in there. Yeah. Now that's connected to a body, which I didn't bring with me, but the body has scales on its back. The body has a fin. So, you know, when I showed it to um, five-year-old kids after we found it, I said, kids, what do you think this thing is? One kid said, well, you know, it looks like a crocodile, just for the reasons you said, right? And another kid corrected him and said, no, 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 it's a fish. It's got fins and scales and so forth. And in fact, they were both right. Both right. This is what the press immediately called the missing link. 
Well, it's a transitional creature between it's 375 million years old. It's a transitional creature between fish that lived in water and some of the earliest creatures to walk on land. Where'd you get this? We found it up in the Canadian Arctic at a latitude of about 80 north, um, the land of the midnight sun in summer. Ellesmere Island. Yep. Uh, an and, island near near Greenland. Yeah, exactly. And it's um, you know it's daylight twenty four hours a day when we're there. Um, it's the about the northernmost part of the Canadian Arctic you know, where you can actually go. It's um, uh, and it's uh, it's a land of polar bears, muskox, uh, caribou, and so forth. And you had made a, a bunch of expeditions up there. You found this on your very last one, but you knew what you were looking for. Yeah, in fact, we predicted. So we started looking for um, new sites to work in nineteen ninety eight. And uh, colleagues and I, Ted Deschler at the University of Pennsylvania, Ferris Jenkins at Harvard, were really thinking about where in the world could we go to make new discoveries to tell us about how life evolved to walk on land, how fish evolved to walk. That's what led us to the Canadian Arctic. So we started in 98. You started in 98. You narrowed it down to an area on Ellesmere Island. You narrowed down your, your prospecting grounds to an area about 900 miles wide. 1,500 kilometers. Yeah. Well, what happened is actually we, we, we got the impetus for the discovery in an <laughs> undergraduate geology textbook. Uh, it showed this like 1,500-kilometer wide swath of, of Devonian age rock, you know, rock of about 375 million years old that, you know, was, is covering the, uh, the Canadian Arctic. Now, you knew from other fossils, other findings, that the uh, sort of emergence from water onto land by fish-like creatures occurred roughly 375, 350 million years ago? We knew about, about 365, 365. Okay. We had the earliest creatures to walk on land. We knew we had some real fishy kinds of things around 380. Yeah. You know, so we wanted to split the difference at around 370, 375. And bingo, in that college textbook, you know, it showed us that the Canadian Arctic had just the right kinds of rocket, just the right kind of age. Well, you make it sound easy, but... Uh, I was anything but, yeah. yeah. Yeah, how do you do this? How do you go about finding a fossil in an area that's this enormous, um, and you don't even know the fossil's there? What we do in the first part of ex every expedition is do a giant aerial survey. We fly over all the rocks. In our heads, we have a search image. You know, we kind of know where we'd expect to find fossils based on previous experience. So we did that here, and, and it turns out our the search images we developed from our work in Pennsylvania in the early 90s kind of didn't work up in the Arctic. Mm. So we had to develop a new one, and mm. that's why it took us so long to do. Mm. So you plop down in a new area, and you look around. You walk on the surface and look for bones coming out of the rock, you know, that erode out of the rocks. And... Um, over time, we've, we started to localize sort of sites that had lots of bones coming out. So, so to add to the drama, after making multiple visits to Ellesmere Island in the Canadian Arctic, looking for this specific uh, missing ancestral fish-like creature, uh, your money's running out. On your last mm -hmm. visit, 2004, you make the discovery. Yeah, so 2004, we land in the Arctic. Um, we were told this was our last year there. And for good reason. We were, you know, there was no, no reason for us to continue unless we found something really important. And on the fifth day of the season was one of those days as a paleontologist I will remember for the rest of my life. My colleague Steve Gatesy was picking rocks up, and we were in a, a quarry we had developed that had lots of fossil skeletons in it. And he said, hey, guys, what's this? And yeah, we all come running over. It wasn't a big spot. We were all next to each other. And so six people are circled around this thing. And what was it? It was the snout of a flat-headed fish sticking right out of, out of the cliff. Like actually, this cast uh, I'm that, holding right now. Actually, the animal that became that cast. I know you've told this story many times. It may not be possible to summon, you know, sort of the feeling of that moment, but this is what a paleontologist lives for. Oh, no, it's easy to summon <laughs> that moment again. I mean, I, I, my heart was beating 
really hard. We were so excited because this was the pinnacle of, of six years' worth of work in a nutshell. And that's why I went into paleontology in the first place for those eureka moments. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a field that can give you that, a physical piece of evidence in, uh, from our distant past uh, that you can touch, you can see, you can hold. And, and here we discovered a piece of that physical evidence. Now the question, now the challenge became completely different. How do we get it out of the rocks? Um, so Steve worked like crazy. We had three weeks left in the season. Steve worked like crazy to etch the thing out, uh, roughing it out. And as he did that, we found three other specimens, two other really good ones uh, oh, yeah. in the same hole. But the ch- it was such bad weather that year that um, the, the tools we used to bring them back, i.e. plaster, to carry everything back wouldn't dry. So mm-hmm. it was a real race against time. We needed, we needed our plaster to dry well enough, to, to set well enough so that we can bring the things back for the helicopter mm-hmm. ride home. Wow. Yeah, so we get everything back to Chicago and Philadelphia that fall, right? And so w- imagine, uh, if you will, the, we now have these plaster jackets that are encasing um, boulders with these bones sticking out of them. And then the preparator set to work. Preparator? Yeah, fossil preparator is a specialized kind of technician uh, they sit under a micros- using a microscope with these boulders under the microscope. They remove um, grains of rock piece by piece uh, over a period of months. Wow. Yeah, so over a period of about five months, these creatures were revealing themselves in the laboratory. You know, first we saw the snout, then the head, then the neck, then the scales, then the fin, then inside the fin. It was just remarkable. What do you feel like during these five months? Oh, I, I, my colleagues and I were on the phone pretty much every day e- emailing JPEGs back and forth. Um, we were giddy with excitement because we knew this was going to be really, really important. Uh, we knew for us w- w- the importance was one thing. That was it was going to tell us about how wrists and necks evolved. But we also knew this was happening in a, in a, in a, in a cultural setting. And this was the time of the Dover trial in Pennsylvania, the Kitzmiller case, you know, with intelligent design in the schools. And people were saying that there were no transitional fossils in the fossil record. And there's this creature on my desk, you know. <laughs> it was a remarkable feeling. I mean, They're saying, the intelligent design advocates are saying there are no transitional fossils in, at any point in the evolution of species or in this particular area from aquatic animal to land animal. This is one that was actually cited in one of their textbooks. Wow. It was just textbook, actually, for them, you know. Wow. And here I, we have Tiktaalik, you know, this creature. Um, but, you know, importantly... You know, we predicted we'd find TikTok. Mm-hmm. We didn't go up there to find mm-hmm. just a beagle or mm-hmm. a, a turtle. Mm-hmm. We went up there to find a creature like this fishapod. You call it TikTok? TikTok, yeah. Um, what happened was uh, once we realized we had a new species and that that species was likely going to be um, get, a, get a lot of traction in the, in the public sphere as well as scientific, uh, you know, we wanted to give it a name that reflected its, um, its provenance. We were there at the pleasure of the Inuit people. Uh, and Nunavut is their territory. So we consulted with the Inuit elders, and they um, uh, they suggested a variety of names. Obviously, the hardest thing was getting names we could pronounce, uh, but Tiktaalik was one that really had a lot of resonance for us. And it means? Large freshwater fish. It's a, it's oh, a kind of freshwater fish. Sounds a lot better in the Inuit language, yeah. i got to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's stuck, and we, we really we like to give it that name. Now, you discovered this specimen, or these specimens, I should say, in 2004. Yeah. You made the official announcement in 2006. Yeah, it's a time-consuming process. So basically, we brought them home as boulders in 2004. They were really sort of the preparators did their work yeah. for about six, six, six months. Yeah. Then we have to you know, write the scientific papers and have it vetted scientifically. So are you sitting on this uh, huge uh, and explosive secret during this time? I mean, Yeah, no one really, only a couple of colleagues knew about it, maybe 
uh, maybe five other people uh, knew about it for a while. And, you know, it had to be vetted. You know, we submitted it to a, a proper scientific journal. It had to be vetted by colleagues and peer review and so forth. And so before we announced it formally, we wanted to make sure it, uh, it, uh, it passed muster. Tell us just a little bit about the world Tiktaalik, this ancestral fish thing, lived in, and, and, and how it lived. I mean, okay. what, can we, what can we piece together from the evidence of this fossil and front, from what you already know? Well, let's look at the setting where we find Tiktaalik. Um, it was almost certain that, that what we call Ellesmere Island today in the Canadian Arctic was much, much closer to the equator. So it was a warmer world. The plants that we find with Tiktaalik are sort of tropical, subtropical kinds of plants. The environment Tiktaalik lived in was in a, a delta system. Think Amazon Delta. Think relatively small stream. Um, lots of other fresh fish. Freshwater. Freshwater stream. Uh, lots of other fish in this stream. Some of them quite big, about 10 feet, mm -hmm. 15 feet long. Um, Tiktaalik itself, if you look at it, uh, and let's begin with the fin. Take the fin apart. Inside the fin is a, you know, is a shoulder, elbow, and a wrist. Um, the beautiful thing about our discovery is that there are many, many specimens and we were able to take Tiktaalik apart. When we did that, we found we had matching joint surfaces, so we can see how each joint worked. Mm -hmm. When we did that, we found that Tiktaalik was specialized to do a form of push-up. A push-up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so think about when you do a push-up, right? Think what happens. Your, your, your elbow is bent, mm -hmm. and your wrist is, 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 and your palm is flush against the ground. Mm -hmm. um, Tiktaalik was able to do that. Is this like a, a seal on its flippers? Yeah, very much like a seal on its flippers, only actually uh, it had a little more mobility in mm -hmm. the wrist area than even a seal does. Mm -hmm. Tremendous pectoral muscles mm -hmm. on Tiktaalik. We can tell that by looking at both the shoulder uh, as well as the, as the upper arm bone, bone, the humerus. So what did it do with its Jack LaLanne-like abilities? Oh, well, it was, basically, it was supporting itself on the, on the, on the bottom. So uh -huh. think about it as an animal that was able to support its body with its fins both in the water, water bottom, in the shallows, as well as on the mud flats. Tiktaalik is an animal that uh, had flathead with eyes on top, like a crocodile. So if it was on the bottom of the water, it could look up at prey. Mm. Or if it was in the top of the water, it could look out at bugs and prey. It had both gills and lungs. So it was clearly able to do both the land, as well as the gulp air, as well as uh, breathe in water. So we, what we think of Tiktaalik is, is an animal that's exploiting the interface between water and land. It's not fully land living. It's not fully aquatic. It's in the shallows, in the mud flats, in the water bottom, in that sort of marginal habitat. Now, you can ask the question, why? Why, you know, why evolve to do well, that? Well, why don't I do that? <laughs> okay. Why, why the interface between land and water? Well, I mean, think about this, the other creatures we're finding with Tiktaalik. Almost everything's a predator, large predators. Um, it, it was truly a fish-eat-fish world at this time. So when you have a predatory world like that, there are three strategies. Get big, <laughs> mm -hmm. get armor, mm -hmm. or get out of the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, get in, a, you know, sort of avoid the fight. It looks like Tiktaalik was actually doing two of those. It was getting big, but it was also, you know, in the marginal habitat. And it would um, climb onto land, walk around, or just stick its head out every now and then? Uh, both. I, I, it probably could support its body on land. Uh -huh. um, if you look at its ribs, the ribs actually flap together in certain ways that suggest that, that it was able to support itself in gravity. Uh -huh. So, you know, with, with Tiktaalik, I think you have an animal that was able to exist on the mudflats for a period uh -huh. of time. Uh, as well as in water. So when it, when it crawled out of the, those primordial waters, leaving behind all these regular fish, did it have, um, you know, did it have things to itself, meaning that it could eat the plants that were already there, could eat the other critters, invertebrates, and things that had already climbed onto land? Yeah, exactly. And if you like, it helps to contrast the two environments, land and water. Yeah. Water loaded with competitors and loaded with predators. Land, 
no predators, no competitors, but lots of food, you know, so. So it had a good for a yeah, while. For a while until, you know, until about uh, 10 million years later when you had real, you know, creatures with true fingers and toes and, you know, real limbed animals. Presumably descendants of Tiktaalik that became what we call amphibians today. Is that relatives right? Relatives. Yeah. yeah, distant yeah. relatives of Tiktaalik, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, the, so the old um, graphic that we all know from our, um, you know, childhood biology textbooks of the, the fish becoming the amphibian, becoming the reptile as it crawls out on land, becoming, of course, gradually the ape and then us. Pretty much correct? Well, no, it, uh, think of a family tree. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't see it as a continual line of evolution. I'd see it as a family tree. Yeah, know? yeah. Now, w- when we talk about the fossil record, of which Tiktaalik is now a, a really important part, how complete is it at this point? Where are the big gaps? Oh, we have lots of gaps. I mean, in fact, if we had, you know, if, if we had, if we knew everything about the, the fossil record, I'd be out of business. Mm. Um, lots of gaps. And we still have gaps. We, you know, every, the joke is, you know, the minute we discovered Tiktaalik, we gap. created two new gaps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, two new gaps between whatever came before Tiktaalik <laughs> and, and whatever came after. And, you know, that sort of summarizes it to some extent. We have, you know, marvelous series at the origin of mammals, but there's still gaps there. Marvelous series at the origin of, 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 of birds from dinosaurs. And yes, we have gaps, but we have gaps even in those series. Uh, it depends on the level of question you want to answer. So if the question you're asking is a, a detailed question about, you know, how did uh, the occipital vertebrae of tetrapods arise? Mm-hmm. Well, we still have a gap. But we have no gap in saying in, in, in the question, you know, did limbed animals arise from lobe fin fish, you know, mm-hmm. primitive lobe fin fish? There's no gap there. Fins became legs. Yeah, exactly. There's no yeah. gap there. Yeah. But we have, in, in terms of the level of detail, I mean, there are certain questions I'd still want to know about the origin mm-hmm. of, of limbs. Are there any contradictions in, in the fossil record? There are two kinds of things we see in the fossil record. One is we find creatures sometimes evolving similar traits independently. We see that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's to Parallel be expe- evolution. Yeah, and that's to be expected from a knowledge of DNA, by the way. But the other is sometimes we find you know, fossils slightly out of place, earlier or later than we expect them to be based on the tree of life. And that's because you know, fossil preservation is a rare thing. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's lots of reasons why we may not find fossils in certain cases because it's hard for a creature to become a fossil. So when we have those disparities, I mean, that's a question, that's an area for me to focus more research on, you yeah. know, not to give up. Yeah. But as far as the contradictions in the fossil record go, um, they're not so great as to uh, overthrow, shall we say, the, uh, the general idea of, of evolution and, and the, the orderly progression from one species to another. Well, here's a contradiction that would kill Darwinian evolution. Uh, if in our next Tiktaalik expedition we found a human skull lying next to Tiktaalik, that's the kind of contradiction that would be the end of show. Or Fred Flintstone next to Dino. Exactly, exactly. Um, the contradictions we find are at a much, 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 much finer scale, you know, so it's, it's a matter of degree, you know. Have you had to take on uh, intelligent design advocates or creationists uh, in debates or in... No. In fact, what, I had a different vantage point that when Tiktaalik came out, I was able to watch how Tiktaalik was interpreted mm. by the intelligent design creationists mm-hmm. in and, and what did they do with it? It was remarkable. So, you know, remember, I had the original fossil on my desk as I was reading a lot of these things. And so I'd, I'd read a position paper put out by some of the main... Discovery you know, Institute. Yeah, or Answers in Genesis or one mm-hmm. of those. And there was one line that was put out by actually both of them, I believe, or definitely one was that Tiktaalik could not support its body with its fins because it had a very weak shoulder, like a coelacanth. Now, coelacanth I, is, a, is a primitive fish that still exists, actually. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and regardless, I had Tiktaalik right there, and I'm looking at its shoulder, and its shoulder is like the size of a boomerang, <laughs> you know, with a giant uh, shoulder socket. And I'm thinking, I don't know where they got this thing. They didn't even read the paper. Anyway, so that one line got picked up by the, you know, the, the bloggerati, if you will. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you just, it, and then it got picked up by essayists. 
from Ann Coulter to others. It was just remarkable. Ann Coulter to watch how, yeah, commented to watch, on TikTok. Yeah, it was, it was amazing to see how how that um, that um, that that mistruth, fundamental mistruth, uh, spread. It was just truly remarkable. What did Ann Coulter have to say about this uh, discovery? She said, you know, you know, look what science do. They just make up something. Anything with a crazy fin is called a missing link. Well, not just, it's not just a crazy fin. It's a fin with a shoulder, elbow, and a wrist, and a massive shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the line about the shoulder being non-existent or too small to support the body in Tiktaalik was, um, was something that was picked up left and right. I forget who. One of the big essayists did pick it up. Uh, but in, in the blogosphere, it just took off like lightning, you know. And um, but anyway, that was just one piece of the story, you know, that I would watched as it, you know, uh, unfolded. Was your integrity ever questioned by these people? Uh, yeah, there was one that said TikTok was a fraud, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, what can you do about that? I mean, it's just nutty. Now, now you could have called this book, which you call your inner fish. You could have called it your inner worm, your inner clam, yeah, <laughs> your 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 inner rodent, I inner mean, yeast, inner yeast. <laughs> yeah, all right, but you have a thing for fish. I do have a thing for fish, and the reason why I have a thing for fish is it's a wonderful roadmap to the basic structure of our brain, our nerves, our 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 body, and also I go out in you know, my summers I discover fish. So mm. so my entree to this is fish. And it's another entree as well is when I taught human anatomy to medical students, um, you know, for teaching the head, for teaching the basic structure of the body. It turns out that fish is just a wonderful way to do it. Give me an example. The cranial nerves in the head, the, the nerves and muscles and bones that I'm using to talk to you with right now correspond to uh, the, the nerves, muscles, and bones that support the gills uh, in fish. And we know that because of the ways that the heads of humans and fish mm. develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that because of the, the, the DNA recipe that builds the heads of humans on the one hand and fish on the other. And interestingly, you know, many of the structures I'm using to talk to you with and many of the structures you're using to listen to me with, actually both of those correspond to the gills of fish. So, I mean... The gills. Yeah, gill bones, gill structures. The gill bones. The gill arches, wow. exactly. Um, and we see it written in the early embryology of humans and fish and sharks. But again, it's in the DNA as well. It's amazing, though, when, you know, in human anatomy, uh, medical students would open up the human head. You know, you literally have to cut through the box of the, the head sure. to see the structures inside. And, boy, just do the, cra- the nerves that, that are in the head, the cranial nerves, the famous cranial nerves, they take weird courses through the head, crisscrossing and so forth. But the only way that makes sense is if you can understand their primordial structure in things like fish. Mm-hmm. So fish are a marvelous teaching tool for the essential structure of our head. And the reason is because our inner fish, it reflects our ancient history. You just echoed a famous quote, and, and evolutionists are good at, uh, at, at issuing famous quotes, but there's one from Theodosius Stobzhansky, a great evolutionary theorist, who said, nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. It's our single unifying theory, it's, and it's, it's just so marvelous because, you know, when you teach anatomy, I can go through the structure of the head, the guts, the urogenital system, and show... Don't do that, please. <laughs> and I could show the, uh, the, uh, the structure of, you know, the, uh, the history of our bodies, but it's written in our development, it's written in our DNA, it's written in the fossil record, mm. it's many lines of evidence mm. pointing to the same thing. That's its beauty and power, you know? Now, now um, we've heard a lot in recent years as DNA, as genomics have become maybe the hottest thing in, in all of the biological sciences. We've heard how evolutionists are reconstructing our family trees, meaning us living things, using just the DNA of current organisms. First of all, how do they do that? Mm-hmm. How do they do that? It's, it's, so the, the central idea is that inside our DNA, 
uh, is our, sh- our features shared with other creatures. Mm-hmm. So if you compare our, you know, my DNA to your DNA, it's similar in a lot of ways, but it's also different in some specific ways. Well, let's compare your and my DNA to a, to a chimpanzee. Well, we'll find you and I are more similar to each other than the chimpanzee in other ways. Mm-hmm. And as we layer in more and more creatures to the chimpanzee that's at a mouse, well, we'll find that you, me, and the chimpanzee share certain features that are not seen in the mouse. Then let's, instead of a mouse, let's add a lizard. Well, it turns the mouse, the human, the chimpanzee, you, me, we all share a lot that's not seen in the lizard. So using that sort of sort of almost nested hierarchy, if you will, yeah. um, uh, you can build a family tree beautifully. Can you date those branching points you using can do DNA? It, you can do it pretty roughly, uh, and sometimes with precision. It depends on how many genes you're looking at. But certain genes evolve at a known clip, change at a known rate. And so if you know the differences between two creatures... You know, and you know the rate that it changes, you can infer the time. You can sort of trace the lines back until the lines meet at a common ancestor at a certain time in history, roughly. And and, and the beautiful thing is that's not just a story, okay? That's a prediction. (laughs) Now we can go test that prediction that you just made. And we'll look at another gene. Does it tell us the same story? And we can look at another gene. We can look at hundreds of genes to tell us whether they tell the same story. Then we can say, well, what does the fossil record say, which is a whole other record. Well, that's my next question. With DNA providing all that information, why do we need guys like you who spend years looking for a couple of fossils. They both provide unique information. So a knowledge of DNA would never have enabled us to predict that Tiktaalik had a neck because all Uh the relevant kinds of creatures that have the key sort of intermediate structures are gone. And so what I find, the reason why I have both a molecular lab and a paleontological lab, is each type of data has its powerful features. And sometimes it works together. But sometimes... There's parts of the story that only one kind of data can do. So, for instance, DNA will not tell us what the ancient environment that early land-living creatures evolved in. That's really the geological and paleontological record. DNA will not tell us, you know, what are the other creatures that lived with Tiktaalik? What was the ecosystem like? You know, um, so if I want the complete picture, I need the DNA trees and its unbelievable power. Uh, but I also need the fossil record, the geology, and so forth. And it's that sort of multidisciplinarity, you know, the fact that we can bring many different tools to bear is really kind of why I went into the science in the first place. It, you know, it keeps you on your toes, but it also has a, a, an intellectual power to it. So you do bones and genes in yes. your lab. Mm-hmm. You prefer one over the other? Um, no, it depends when you talk to me. I mean, so <laughs> I like working in the field a lot. So, um, you know, lab work I enjoy, but, uh, but field work is really where my heart's mm-hmm. at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, but it depends. I mean, really, we go where the, where the, the intellectual questions are. You know? yeah. So if I want to understand the DNA, you know, how DNA recipe that builds fins and bodies, well, boy, you know, uh, there is kind of like nothing better to work on than sharks and fish and so forth. How do you go about looking for the DNA recipe that, that shapes a body? Well, the good news is that what biologists have been doing for the last century is working on um, flies, uh, re- more recently fruit flies. worms, fruit flies. More recently, worms. Nematodes. Um, more, a little more distantly, salamanders and frogs mm-hmm. and so forth. From those discoveries, from working on those things, um, developmental biologists and geneticists have discovered that there's a common sort of toolkit, if you will, uh, of major genes, that regulatory genes, that is genes which control major properties of development, uh, among all animals. So the, the body plan building genes, the DNA recipe that builds the, the, the body of a fly is not very different from that which builds the body of a mouse or a human. It's the same but different. 
So that gives us the essential tools then to drill in on sharks and ask how organs develop and so forth. So it's a remarkable time to be a biologist, actually, because we're coming with, with, with the power of genomics, with the experimental power of developmental biology, um, and the computational tools and the experimental tools we now have. We really can now really begin to ask very specific questions, like, you know, uh, how does one gene control the development of uh, the, the, pa the, the bones in the fin? Yeah. You know, what we can do is knock that gene out. Mm. We can turn it off. Or we can turn it on in the wrong place. Or we can make a mutant line with that gene inactive in the wrong place. And so we can do the, the right kinds of experiments to begin to ask the question about how genes, how DNA builds bodies. Yeah. Well, let me ask that question in a certain way, and that is, if I look at a fruit fly and I look at a human being, okay, I can see a head, a tail, uh, yeah, legs, although the, not the same number of legs. I can see a few things in common, but boy, it seems like a world of difference. And yet you're saying the same genes roughly control the, uh, the shape and, and mm -hmm. overall structures? Yeah, you think then they're all built in three dimensions. There's a front and a back, a top and a bottom, and a left and a right. And, and organs have their place in those three dimensions. Think of it as a, a three-dimensional three grid. Well, what these common genes do is actually set up that grid to some extent. They, they, they inform the, the body where, we, you know, where, where to put a wing or where to put a limb and so forth. So the, the, the coordinate system of the embryo is set up by common sets of genes because they develop in these three dimensions. Mm -hmm. And then where they may differ is in things that are further down the, the, the hierarchy, you know, later on in development. And the remarkable thing is, is that aspects of the coordinate system in creatures as different as flies, worms, and humans um, are very, very similar. Indeed, even similar versions of the same genes in each. In each. For instance, the, what's called the Hox genes, a set of genes that sort of shape the overall body plan. Exactly. Um, you know, fly, the, the fly body plan is sculpted by, by Hox genes, as is the mouse and the human and so forth. And indeed, human, the human Hox genes, the ones that sort of sculpted your body and mine, uh, are versions of the same ones that sculpted the body of a fly. Now, they're not identical. In fact, we have more of them than a fly. Uh -huh. um, uh, and in fact, those Hox genes also sculpt aspects of our appendages, our fingers and toes. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're very important in sculpting the coordinate axis of the whole body as well as individual organs. What's hard to understand, I think, um, for someone who hasn't studied it in detail, is how a relatively small number of changes, and I think that's what you're saying, mutations and variations that come along during the course of evolution, could change oh, something in, that's roughly in the shape of a fly into something that's roughly in the shape of a human being or a dog. How is that possible? How do you get major changes like that? Yeah, how do you get major changes from relatively small variations on the same set of genes, or well, roughly the same set of genes? Well, what you could see is when you mutate these genes. So when these genes are, when we sort of mess with their development, either naturally looking at mutants or uh, artificially by creating mutant lines, what you can see is the power of weight. So if you turn these genes on in the wrong place, you can end up with extra eyes. You can end up with extra body segments. You can end up with limbs with extra joints. You know, if you do that in a laboratory in two years, imagine what evolution can do in hundreds of millions of mm -hmm. years. Um, what we're seeing is that the sort of the genetic toolkit, read the machinery, the fuel that, that fuels evolution by natural selection, is capable of massive change. Yeah. Change that we could see in our own time scales. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, is that, you know, um, 
you know, how not how could all that change happen? It's like why did it happen so slowly? Mm. <laughs> it was mm. Sort of a different question. Really, you think that's that's oh, a more challenging question? I'm not more challenging. I think it's an open question. I think uh-huh. what we see is when we look at a natural selection, both in the laboratory and in the wild, organisms are capable of very very rapid change. But what we find is that the the change we actually see, even that that leads to the origin of body plans, is actually a little bit slow. It's over millions of years. It's a little slower, you know. Um, and there are all kinds of theories about why that might be the case. Um, you know, one is that, you know, environments change back and forth, and maybe, you know, they're not changing in a single direction. That mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that's really remarkable to, to contemplate is that the, the same sort of genetic building blocks that make us are present not only in apes and other mammals and reptiles and amphibians and then fish, like your friend Tiktaalik, um, but all the way back, in some cases, to microorganisms. Oh, absolutely. So let's think what a body is. Let's, yeah. just take, a, let's, let's take it all the way back. Okay. What's a body? Yeah. Well, I mean, a body is, a, is, a, is a, a, in our case, a body is two trillion cells packed in a very precise mm-hmm. way. That differs from, you know, a sort of a colony of cells. Like, take a mat of bacteria and compare that to a body. A mat of bacteria is lots of cells. What happens if I cut that mat of bacteria in half? I end up with two mats of bacteria. What happens if I cut a human being in half? I end up with no human being. So there's an integrity to the cells that make a body that is different from, you know, this just simple mat or colony of organisms. Sure. Now, where that integrity comes from is the way that those cells interact with one another, the way that they have a division of labor in our body, that the way that they've specialized and so forth. And the only way that that happens is when you have a cell where each cell can talk or communicate to the cell next to it. Well, what we mean when we're talking about cellular communication is really conveying information from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. Right. You know, and that's what happens when cells, quote, talk to each other. Um, well, where did that come from? Where's the toolkit that leads to that? That's the toolkit that allowed bodies to develop in the first place. Well, where we see the essences of that or the primordia of that is actually microorganisms, where they have a variety of molecular mechanisms where information can be carried from the outside of the microbe to the inside of the microbe. You know, microbes eat each other. Microbes avoid that fate, Mm -hmm. you know. And Mm -hmm. the only way they do that is by knowing their environment, by Mm -hmm. literally sensing Mm -hmm. their environment. Mm -hmm. And so that molecular machinery that sort of microbes evolved to interact with their environment actually was the machinery that enabled cells to come together to make bodies. Wow, it all sounds so straightforward and so simple now. <laughs> yeah, and just add a billion years. And <laughs> <laughs> There's another gene that, that has a long ancestry um, and, and, and I guess a fairly typically funny name. I mean, uh, geneticists like to give funny names to these genes in some cases, called Sonic Hedgehog. Yeah, Sonic Hedgehog. Uh, one of the discoverers of uh, Sonic Hedgehog is um, my friend Cliff Tabin. And, you know, what he was after when he was looking for this This is gene. after the video game character, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, Sonic Hedgehog is a gene that appears to control, uh, part of its activity controls the difference between a pinky and thumb area of our, of our hand. So if, um, if, you, if you make a, 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 a creature with Sonic Hedgehog turned on in the wrong place... Uh, you end up with an you know end up with duplicate fingers in the hand. If you turn it off, you only end up with one finger. So and different degrees of sonic activity control how many digits yeah. fingers you have. We should we we could use this as an occasion for a little biology lesson. The fact that all of our cells, aside from our blood cells, our red blood cells, have a complete set of genes in them. Everything all the other cells have. Those genes are turned on differently in different cells, which is why a skin cell is different from an eye cell is different from a stomach cell. 
Yeah, exactly. And so it's those genetic switches yeah. that build bodies, turning them off and on at the wrong, at right. the right places. Um, so Sonic Hedgehog is one of these switches, turning it on and off at the right time, really controls, you know, the pinky to thumb difference. And so people in my laboratory were interested in, in Sonic Hedgehog and asking, well, is it unique to creatures that have fingers and toes and pinkies and, and thumbs? Um, or is it really ancient? Well, and so we decided, well, one of the postdocs in my laboratory, Randy Don, decided, well, you know, let's start at the beginning. Let's look at the most primitive living creatures which have fins, which are sharks and skates. And so he did, he got, he, he, what he did is he got those creatures in the laboratory and isolated the gene Sonic Hedgehog and found it and then mapped it, in the, where, it de, where it turns on in the developing a fin. And guess what? It turns on in pretty much the same place it turns on in our, in our own appendages in development. Wow. Then he turned it on in the wrong place. And guess what? He got the same result you'd get if you turned it on in the wrong place in a mouse or a human hand. You got a duplication. Um, what he showed is that this gene sonic hedgehog is controlling the difference between one side of the fin in a shark and another side of the fin, which is essentially what it's doing in humans, controlling the difference between one side of the hand, making the thumb, different right. from the other side of the hand, the pinky. Something goes wrong, though, and you're all thumbs. Well, in fact, that's actually, that's actually you're, it's being funny, but it's actually true. If you, <laughs> if, you turn, if you manipulate Sonic to the point where you can make all the fingers look the same. <laughs> yeah, and, so, and the same thing's true with a shark fin, if you can do the same deal. This all reminds me of, of the fact that um, Darwin, at least they say, never really used the term evolution, um, that he had another phrase that he liked. Descent with modification. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in, in this case, in, in your inner fish, descent with modification is actually a, a wonderful operative term, operating term. It sounds, it sounds so complicated, but it's really how I differ from my dad and mom. It's how they differ from their parents. It's how my great-grandparents differ from my great-great-grandparents. And it's how I could take it all the way back to pun, puns come and beyond is descent with modification. It's that simple step that explains everything. It's, it's saying in that phrase, descent with modification, that we are not created from scratch. We, every species wasn't created uh, from a blank slate. It was made by modifying what was there before. Exactly. Sometimes just a little tweak and you've got a new species. Exactly. And in fact, that's the beautiful thing about what we're learning about genetics now is we see the kinds of genetic tweaks that can lead to new species. But it also, it, it, you know, sometimes the great ideas are wonderfully, elegantly simple. You know, and here is this wonderful idea that says, well, every living thing is, had, there's a continuity of life. Mm -hmm. And every living thing had a parent or the genetic equivalent of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and that we're not identical to our parents, that there's differences. And what's remarkable about that fact is that enables us to reconstruct evolutionary history. You know, using the same tools we can, re we can re reconstruct our own family trees with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, we reconstruct the family tree of life all mm -hmm. the way down to sponges and beyond. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's remarkable that that simple and elegant idea has just such predictive power. Yeah. Well, it's been called the greatest idea anyone has ever had. Darwin's idea of natural selection. And descent with modification. <laughs> and descent with modification. Um, knowing what you know about descent with modification, that, that, you know, in order to create a new life form, you really just have to nudge, you know, a few genes this way or that way. And sometimes something very different emerges. Can you predict what comes next, what might come next in any given species? Um, it's hard to do, you know, and the reason is, is, and I'm not hedging this, it's just there's this fine interaction between sort of the genetic internal mm -hmm. properties of a creature 
and the environment, the yeah, external. You could never predict what will be selected, but can right. you predict some of the variations that natural selection might have to play with? Oh, absolutely. On that end of things, absolutely. So um, knowing, with a knowledge of developmental biology and genetics, I could predict likely and unlikely patterns of variation in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not everything is equally possible. Uh, for years, we worked on salamanders that way, so we were able, David Wake, who's at the University of California, Berkeley, and I, uh, worked on salamanders, and we were interested in salamander limb development. And what was remarkable is knowing something, how, knowing a little bit about how salamander fingers and toes and wrists and ankles formed, we were able to predict likely and unlikely patterns of variation in populations. Because uh, there were certain kinds of... And you mean predict accurately. Your predictions yes, were confirmed. very accurately. And so um, the kinds of variation, absolutely. And um, the reason why is that there were certain kinds of variation that were sort of almost impossible to construct. You know, let's use the architectural analogy. I mean, if, if, you, if, you, if you have rules to build a house and materials to build a house, there are only certain kinds of houses you can build with those rules and materials. Well, the same thing is true with genetics and development, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you can absolutely make those kinds of predictions. A common question among lay folks, and maybe some scientists as well, are human beings still evolving? Oh, very much, yeah. Um, You know, if you look at our genomes, our genomes are very much evolving, um, and in some cases actually evolving by natural selection. Uh, as well as by neutral, you know, by genetic drift, which is mm-hmm. another major, um, another major mechanism. What's genetic drift? Genetic drift is a, sort of how random factors in, in in evolution. So you can have sort of variation that that gets um, fixed, that um, becomes common in populations simply because of random factors like throwing in the dice. It's like the law of small numbers. If you flip a coin, right? If I flip it 5 million times, it's a very good chance I'll get 50% heads and 50% tails. If I only flip it, you know, six times, eh, you know, who knows? I could get, you know, five and one, you know. You could get so, six heads in a row and it wouldn't exactly. be that extraordinary. Exactly. So yeah. it's the law of small numbers. So right. in um, natural populations, as they get smaller and smaller and smaller, our quantitative theories, our statistical theories, have a harder time predicting mm-hmm. the exact outcome. Random mm-hmm. factors can take mm-hmm. over. That's genetic drift. Right. Um, and that happens in human populations. If you have small populations, you can have their genomes differ from the statistical expectation of what their property should be based on random chance. But our genomes are definitely evolving. They're mutating every day and they're adapting and so forth. And so there's some recent studies um, looking at this in the last few months. But also, you know, our bodies are changing as well. One of the things about humans that's a little bit different is we have, a, than other organisms, is we have an exceptional capability of actually controlling uh, our, our environment. Yeah, and this has been used as an argument sometimes to say that we aren't really evolving by natural selection anymore, that we are controlling our own destiny. Well, to some extent, that's only going to increase, I mm-hmm. believe. Um, uh, our technologies, our medicines and gizmos um, definitely can impact you know, our capabilities. A- and at some point, human performance, human ability, human lifespan uh, are, uh, are going to be uh, sort of dependent more on technology uh, than they are today. And to some extent, that's, you know, us taking the reins to some extent of our own, of our own evolution, if you will. It's not really evolution per se in the biological sense of the term. Where, where and how, though, is natural selection still changing us, do you think? In terms of physiological adaptations, certainly in terms of in, in, within our genome, uh, I think it's, it's sort of intra-genome uh, changes within the DNA structure itself. 
uh, where natural selection takes over. And it may be selection within the genome itself, you know, in terms of different genes within the genome, but it also uh, is physiological adaptations within local populations. What are we adapting to, do you think? Well, I mean, you could have things like um, adapting to uh, local m uh, microbial floras, mm -hmm. um, you know, within, within our guts and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, that's probably the most common thing, that the, our natural balance with mm -hmm. our microbial um, uh, neighbors who inhabit us <laughs> and surround us. A selective process like that's only going to work as natural selection does by changing our reproductive success, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is how natural selection works. Something comes along, a variation that allows you to reproduce more than the next guy. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you have more descendants, and if that process continues through multiple generations, that gene is going to be far more common than it used to be. So you're saying these changes in our ability to, you know, deal with certain microbial flora um, could actually make a difference in how much we reproduce? Absolutely. I mean, our, li our viability depends on these in mm -hmm. a lot of cases, mm -hmm. absolutely. And it's only going to get m more as, the micro as, you know, as microbial threats become mm -hmm. more and more, uh, you know, in, in, um, intense. And as our medication, as our ability to, uh, to adapt technology to our microbial ah. threats uh, becomes uh, more hampered. Mm -hmm. uh, it just depends. We live in a continual balance with our microbial world. Um, you know, we are 2 trillion cells, right, as I've said. Uh, but the reality is, is we're not, actually. We're probably about 8 trillion cells. There's about, you know, 2 pounds of microbial glop inside and around uh, inside us and around us. Uh, and that's about 6 trillion cells. So yeah. most of our bodies are microbes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we live in a finely tuned balance with them. So the selection that I'm talking about is not like natural selection at the at the whole organism, I see it's within saying. our genomes itself, within parts of the genome relative to other parts of the genome. Parts of the genome are competing with each other exactly. in a kind of miniature ecosystem. Exactly. I mean, so. we are we we are an eco. Each of our bodies is an ecosystem. In mm -hmm. fact, many ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, between our own cells and genes and the gen and those which we depend on. So, yeah, absolutely, we're changing. You're saying genes are actually competing without necessarily impacting us all that much? Not our own viability, but their viability. Their viability. Exactly. exactly. So different pieces of the genome can duplicate at different rates or reproduce at different rates mm -hmm. and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, I mean, we are our own universe <laughs> inside us to some extent. Yeah. This is one of the explanations for at least some of the... Um, the huge amount of junk, so-called junk DNA, absolutely that comes in between our our actual genes. Most of our genome is actually this stuff that is poorly understood. It's not genes; it's junk DNA. And there's a theory that maybe it's sort of self-propagating, and we're looking at a kind of Darwinian process down there. Um, but also, there's a lot of DNA. So there's a lot we don't know about DNA. A lot of the structure of DNA is very important for its operation. Yeah. So while the exact sequence of these you know, long stretches may not be important, the actual fact that there's a long stretch there is, or you know. As we begin to understand how DNA actually works at its different levels of structure, I think then uh, these other puzzles will, will sort of fall into place a bit more. Um, you know, getting back to the idea of descent with modification, the fact that every new twist in the development of a species is really a variation on an old theme. This is what really flies in the face of creationism and intelligent design, which declares that Somebody up there created it all from scratch, you know, in his own way. Well, one of the things that strikes you in the anatomy lab when we dissect human cadavers is just how unintelligently designed the human body actually is. I did want to go there, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Uh, yes. You know, when you open up a human head for the first time, you see arteries and nerves and, and vessels take weird courses. You yeah. see the, the spermatic cord take a loop as around the pelvis as it goes from the scrotum to the penis. It does a loop-to-loop. -loop. You, um, you find just unbelievable detours and, 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 and 
It just, it just doesn't seem to make sense unless you look at history. Um, and, you know, it's, I rem, I'm reminded of the time I first looked at the human head inside and I saw the cranial nerves. And it reminded me that when, when engineers were working on my office in, uh, at the University of Chicago and they opened up the wall for the first time. Full of wires. Full of wires and a jumbled mess. Yeah. And the only way that jumbled mess of wires in my wall made sense was by knowing the history of each renovation over the past years because no new engineer would have designed it like that. The same thing's true with the human head and the wiring inside our head. The same thing's true with uh, the wiring of our guts and, and so forth. And so that... You know, to, to make sense of those complicated the wiring of our body, we have to look at two levels of history. The first is our history from egg to adult, how it develops, and the other is our history from, you know, fish to human or even further back. And though um, you biologists are always informing us of the marvelous innovations of evolution and some of the astounding things that have come out of it, you know, I mean, just not just human beings, but all the remarkable things that animals can do, bats using, you know, echolocation, fish that can swim with very little effort very quickly, you know, things like that, birds that can fly. There's a lot that's really actually unintelligently designed oh, very. Yeah, in, in absolutely. biology. Absolutely, because, you know, you're, you're designing new stuff using old materials. Yeah, you know, using so there's the a jerry-rigged make... sort of quality to a lot of things. Absolutely, like that. that's one of the greatest analogies, because you're using the old to make the new. And that places certain constraints, but not really. I mean, you, the organisms are amazingly resilient. It's just the way that that sonar developed in bats was through, uh, you know, ear structures that are present in every other mammal. They've tweaked that. We're a, we're a fish that walks on two legs. And when you look at it that way, that means our body breaks down in certain predictable ways. Mm. Our knees aren't able to, to accommodate the loads that we put on them. Uh, portions of our abdominal wall are not able to um, accommodate oftentimes the, the loads we put on them and so forth. You know, we're a fish that can walk, that can talk, that has super precise uh, uh, ability to manipulate objects with our hands. We can think. And for that, we pay a price. We, we look a little green around the gills sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. If you could do it over... Uh, what parts of the human body would you do differently? Um, I think, uh, you know, being a male, uh, having <laughs> a uh, a weak abdominal wall where I can get an inguinal hernia. In fact, uh -huh. I've had one. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, I think I'd redo this testes thing, taking the loop-the-loop. -loop. I wouldn't have the spermatic uh, cord uh, do a loop-the-loop -loop over the pelvis and create a weakening of the male body wall. Well, if you want to go that route, would you want to put one of the more vulnerable uh, parts of the body on the outside as opposed to shielded somewhere? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would be that'd be good. But also, um, just this, this weak abdominal wall, having had a hernia um, because of my fish history, yeah, it kind of pisses me off. Yeah, I would probably have the spermatic cord go directly to the penis rather than take this loop over the pelvis. Curse you, inner fish. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And we've been listening to an interview with Neil Shubin. He's professor of organismal biology and anatomy at the University of Chicago. He's also provost of the Field Museum of Natural History and author of Your Inner Fish, A Journey into the 3.5 Billion-Year History of the Human Body. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And uh, to end today's show, I wanted to go back to an idea that Neil Shubin and I briefly lighted on, that our genomes are in some ways like an ecosystem. That is, it's a jungle down there with genes and other genetic elements interacting and propagating and even competing all on their own terms. And for a little more on that viewpoint, I'm going to play a short excerpt from a conversation I had a few years ago with David Hausler. He's director of the Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering at UC Santa Cruz. He and his team have played a central role in mapping the human genome as well as the genomes of other species. 
He and I talked about the sheer complexity of the human genome, which goes way beyond our 20,000 or so officially recognized genes and includes all kinds of other DNA sequences and genetic gadgetry whose function scientists are only beginning to sort out. So you have a whole collection of little gizmos that are in this genome, and, and they, their physical existence is as little stretches of DNA, but the actual entity, the genomes and the rules, is more, it's more like an ecology or a society. Each one does something uh, to affect the others, and it's the, it's the overall network of activity. That's what persists. That's what evolution is acting on. I'm getting back to the idea of, of how we as human beings can begin to grasp this thing, even if metaphorically. When you get a system this complicated, is there a qualitative difference from the kind of simplistic mechanisms we usually sort of liken it to? Is there something altogether different about, say, an ecosystem or a society than a, just a really simple program-driven mechanism? Is there some new order of understanding we need in order to, to begin to get a picture of this thing? It certainly is a different kind of logic than you would um, use to understand a computer program. So I, I dislike the metaphor of, of the genome as a computer program because it, do, it's, it has this different, more societal feel to it. What the mathematical foundations for you know, understanding this type of an organization are, that's a huge question. People are exploring various types of of approaches, there are a number of technical approaches, uh, you know, Bayesian or graphical models, and uh, various dynamical systems theory uh, approaches, um, complicated uh, collections of partial differential equations to capture some things. But it it becomes the the sheer number of variables in interacting entities very quickly swamps out. Uh, most of the traditional approaches, and and we're going through a process of groping and trying to develop a mathematical framework that's capable of handling these enormous numbers of interacting units. Um, even with today's most powerful computers, we, we run into a roadblock very quickly. Now, what does that kind of complexity that you just described say to us about our ability to ultimately manipulate the genome to our own yeah. purposes. I think you have to be very, very cautious when you make any predictions of us being able to rationally manipulate the genome. Uh, the sheer complexity of what we're seeing argues uh, against that being a practicality uh, any time in the near future, certainly. Uh, we can never imagine what some kind of distant futuristic science might be capable of, but it won't come anytime soon. And certainly from that perspective, you have to be very cautious about anybody that claims uh, that, that we'll be able to rationally, you know, manipulate the genome in, in, a, uh, in a very fundamental sense. Now, that, that being said, there are all levels of complexity in the genome. Not every little story is tied up in an enormous knot. Some of them are very straightforward and allow us to make diagnoses or to help from a, a medical standpoint in terms of uh, prognosis and treatment. Um, there are some diseases that are 
genetic diseases, inherited diseases, and they are characterized by a very simple change in the DNA uh, that is completely unambiguous. Um, does this new sense of the complexity of the genome, does this new sense of the mechanisms that may play into change, does this, does this create an even more plausible story for natural selection in terms of being able to create great complexity and um, to make design changes rather rapidly, you know, which mm -hmm. seems so hard for some people to grasp. Absolutely. In the, in the long run, as we start to understand the molecular mechanisms that govern uh, the cell, we'll be able to have more detailed explanation for how evolutionary change works and how it can be bursty sometimes, and there can be very dramatic changes uh, over a short period of time and then stable for a long time. And that's it for today's 7th Avenue Project. More on these and related matters in future shows. Until then, I'm Robert Polly.